It's good to be at Sunset Bible Church today. Uh, Would you take your Bibles, please, and turn to John chapter 4. And uh, as you're turning, um, I I just want to commend this church and the good work you do in mission globally. And we are just um, thrilled that the Brewbakers and the Burus are part of our global organization. We work in close to 50 countries now around the world. And um, I was able to come in yesterday. Our, we're based in uh, Metro Atlanta, our offices, but um, I, I was in the hotel this morning and uh, was up early for the first service to come and speak. And the, uh, the man at the front desk uh, asked why I was so wide awake. He said, doesn't the time change affect you? And I'm, well, I, I've never flown to the West Coast on time change spring forward weekend. And it turns out it's an antidote um, because I, right now it's 1, 1 p.m. out there and it feels like noon on my body clock. So I'm wide awake and ready to go. Don't talk to me this evening though, because I won't be a very nice person. But uh, the morning, uh, I, I just go West um, when, when, when time changes here. Uh, it's good to be with you. Um, this, this message that I'm going to share with you today is, is very important and it, it challenges uh, kind of the world we're living in right now, because right now we are living in a global environment that identity and um, society are going through constant change. We hear about it in, uh, certainly in the church, we hear about it in the political situation, we hear it about it in the social situation, and frankly, for good reason. But it's not just happening in the United States. It's happening everywhere. The world is really going through change and turmoil. What we're going to see from John chapter 4 is that they used different terms and ways of thinking, perhaps, about the problems. But the problems were the same. Uh, Marginalization. Who am I as opposed to who are you? Who are you as opposed to me? And these major concerns that people are wrestling with really defined a lot of the world in the time of Jesus in the same way it does today. And there is an answer that we can start to think about today. And it is all centered on something called evangelism. Evangelism is a very fancy way of saying sharing good news. Good news. But can I say something about news? News is only news when it's shared. News does not exist unless it's shared. I'm originally from Texas. My mother's side, many generations back. My father's side, not many at all. Um, my grandfather was actually from up here. And even though I'm not from up here, um, I have a soft spot for it because of my grandfather. And uh, so I, I have mixed feelings when it comes to our sports. Um, because I, I was born in Fort Worth, grew up in DFW, and I loved being here. I always love coming to the Pacific Northwest. It's one of the most beautiful places in all the world, and I truly believe that. I've traveled in over 50 countries, and this is one of the most beautiful places in all the world up here. And, uh, and so I, I really enjoy coming up here, but there are exceptions. And I walked into your men's restroom this morning, 
And I thought that I was having a nightmare as I walked in from my childhood in the 19, as a teenager and young adult in the 90s, looking at all these guys from the Mariners who year in and year out destroyed my Texas Rangers because we had the best hitters in baseball, but we couldn't pitch to save our life. And you absolutely destroyed us. Year in and year out. It was like having nightmare shock waves hit me this morning when I got to church. No, it's Ken Griffey Jr., Randy Johnson, they're all up there. They're not even going to get started on Ichiro. So anyway, it is good to be here, but we, I want to say that in being here, I'm very aware of where we are in the world, culturally, socially. We spent 10 years, my wife Sarah and I, we were married in 2000, we have three children, a 16-year-old boy, a 13-year-old boy, and a 7-year-old, almost 7-year-old little girl who does indeed know she's in charge of the whole family, and we're all okay with that. Um, We spent about 10 years in Russia and Eastern Europe, and then from 2010 to about 2020, just two months before the pandemic started, we were in London, England. And being here in your church, and even the music, and uh, even some of the visitor packets, some of the things you give away, it just very much, very, very similar to our worship, our church, our congregation, and the feeling of what, of what we lived with. And as it turns out, uh, London tends to get a lot of rain too, so um, I feel very much that way. What we're going to see in John 4 is how to live in a world as a Christian, exactly like the one you're living in. So please read with me. John chapter 4, verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to come to pass through Samaria. Uh, so he, came to, he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sikhar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, which means about noon in the day. Now, we're about to step into verse 7, and before we do, it's a, an absolutely essential verse in this passage. I think really kind of a hidden highlight of the passage, if you will. I want you to look and realize we've just come through John chapter 3. And John 3 may be the most famous passage in all the Bible, simply because of John 3.16, the most famous verse in all the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, that verse is very famous. But what's happening in that verse? Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a very well-regarded man. He's a Jewish leader. He's religious. He's a scholar. And he came to Jesus to ask some questions about religion, about identity, about where he was going when he died. And they unpacked some really serious ideas. And in the course of that conversation, Jesus told Nicodemus something really important. 
He said that Nicodemus needed a spiritual birth. He talked a lot about the spirit. He said that you must be born of spirit. You must be born again. Nicodemus really struggled with that. And we don't really know how that conversation ended. And then on the back of that, we see the last verse of John 3. Look at it if you would. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And so Jesus portrayed here as the Son of the living God. We see now that same Jesus is going from Judea back into Galilee. We don't really know why, but it seems he's avoiding perhaps a religious disturbance with the leaders of his religion. Because his time has not yet come, perhaps, to face what he may have to face. So, he's going to Galilee. Now, I've been to the Holy Land, and there are some really major motorways and highways that you can pass through to get from Jerusalem on up to the Galilee to the north via Tel Aviv and otherwise. But still to this day, over land as the crow flies, the fastest way is through Samaria, which is still there and still has Samaritans. So, it's interesting that Jesus has to go through Samaria, and he does. And as he approaches this town, it's a famous town. It has religious pilgrimage in it. It has a site that's famous for the Samaritans. It's a place that is known, and there's water there. And that's really important. You say, Andrew, why was it important that there's water? Because it's the Middle East and it's hot and people get thirsty. Sometimes the Bible's really simple. And it's important not to lose sight of that. On that trip to the Holy Land, I, my favorite water example is I, w- I was down in the south towards the south of Israel, going into the wilderness in the south. And there's the Dead Sea. To the west, just a little ways, is a national park with a spring called En Gedi, where David spent time. And it's very, very famous. It's a, read the story of En Gedi. It's amazing. But for me, it, you know, if you've ever been on a trip, and if you haven't been, you should think about going. But if, if you can, you know, try once in your life to get there. It just brings everything alive for you in the Bible. But... I was on that trip, and, and after days and days and days of seeing biblical sites, and I was surrounded by a group of American pastors, and most of them were wearing khakis and polos. No criticism, I'm just telling you what they were wearing. And they were really, really into it the whole time. And it's not to say I wasn't into it, but it was like 100 degrees. It was July, not the best time to go. And we'd been going and going and going for days, and I don't mean this bad, but I, I was kind of tired of all the history. And it's like, yes, David was here, but it's 100 degrees outside. And that didn't mean a lot to me right at that very moment. And we walked up to the spring, and it's actually a waterfall just gushing out of rocks. And I saw some people were getting in the water. Not our group. No, no, no. They were all in khakis. And... 
I just looked at my wife who was on the trip with me and she looked back at me and she saw my eyes and she knew and she like shakes her head. And I'm like, no, I don't care. And I just ran and jumped right in the waterfall. Just po- it was the best moment of the trip. And it had nothing to do with the Bible as such, but it was awesome because it was really hot and I got cooled off in an ancient waterfall. Okay. In retrospect, it even's better. I was in David's waterfall, you know, it's like, but at the moment I was just in a waterfall and it was amazing. It's hot and dry in the Middle East and water matters. And then I got back on that bus, the coach dripping wet. And I don't think they were too happy with it. I didn't care. It was worth it. Jesus' humanity is on full display here. Let me say this again. Please listen. Jesus' humanity is on full display here. You cannot miss this in the story. We can over-spiritualize and over-read the Bible at times, but I want you to look at what it says. It says in verse 6, John 4, Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. What do you do when you're tired? You sit down. He's been walking for hours. It's the sixth hour of the day. The overland journey on foot, he's tired and he sits down. In verse 8, and we'll come back to verse 7, we see that his disciples had gone into the city there to buy food. He's sitting outside the city at a well, probably some shade there, probably just a place to rest a little bit cooler. And the men had gone to get food and bring it back for the group. A woman, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. This text is going to reveal Jesus as an endless and essential Supply of water. In a world that subjugated women, constantly struggled with ethnic and religious tension, we see the full humanity and full divinity of Christ revealed here in an extraordinary way. In these few brief words, Jesus is sitting at the well. A woman from Samaria comes to get water from the well. And I've heard this written and talked about in a variety of ways, and frankly speaking, I'm not even going to touch on them because we don't see them in the text. There's broad assumptions made. The fact is, there is a well, and there is a woman coming to get water from the well. That in in and of itself is not remarkable. That Jesus, weary on a journey is sitting at the well, is also not remarkable. Can I say to you this morning, ladies and gentlemen, this is an everyday moment. Somebody is coming to the well. Well, of course they are, because the well is where you get water, and you have to have water to stay alive. The well is where people go. The the well is where people rest. The well is a crossroads. It's a place you go probably every day of your life. And I want to say somebody is coming to the well. And here Jesus is 
what turns this all upside down is he says, give me a drink. Give me a drink. Before I go any further this morning in the text, in the passage, I want to pose this question to you. Please hear it. Who do you know? What kind of people do you know? Who are the folks that you might cross paths with that you would never ask them for a drink of water? Because that's what's happening here. Who are the kind of people in this world? What do they look like? What are their beliefs? What is their religion? What impression do they give you? How do they make you feel when you're around them? That there is such loathing in you and me that we would not even ask them for something so basically human as a glass of water. But the truth is, that's exactly what makes this text come to life. Is that Jesus does that. Now that's a tough question. But that's the question from this passage. You see, scholars have fancy words in the 21st century and back in the 20th century, they started coming up with things like constructions of identity and ways of seeing themselves in the world. And one thing that we've come up with a lot and heard a lot about since 9-11 is something called ethno-religious tension, ethno-religious violence, ethno-religious strife. Well, they've had that a long time. And and to really break it down for you, what it means is, and you know where I'm going, did you know that people don't naturally get along with people who aren't like them? People who don't look like them, people who don't talk like them, people who don't think like them, people who don't vote like them, people who don't worship like them and pray like them, people don't get along with people different than they are. And that can get so heated that they can kill one another over those differences. That is the history of the world. And 2,000 years ago, as Jesus sat at the well with a woman from Samaria, he is stepping on centuries of differences when he makes this statement. Give me a drink. You see, the Samaritans were different. They were descendants of occupiers and invaders of God's holy land. They were partly Jewish heritage and partly Gentile heritage. They had a different worship system, a different way of seeing the world, a different way of seeing themselves. They were isolated from one another. So for Jesus to go through here and then speak to a woman who in general in that time and I'll speak to that in just a moment, but in general in that time, women in many of the societies were regarded in some ways as mere property, even to some cases viewed as less valuable than the average farm animal. Now, not in every society, but it was not uncommon. And certainly, at a minimum, women were to be seen as less than men. 
Now, one thing I often object to when we hear this is that this passage is that in that time, women were seen as X. And I say, it's not terribly different in most of the world today. And in much of America, even now, it may not be quite as overt, certainly. And there are legal protections and so on. But the tension of male and female and oppression and dominant, all of that is at play here. But so much more 2,000 years ago in the culture and the time. When Jesus looks at her, he says, give me a drink. He steps on a lot of things. And how do we know that? Well, the first reason is because she doesn't give him a drink. She looks at him. And her response, please look at it with me. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, in parentheses, as an explanation in the text. This doesn't happen. Literally, that's what the Bible's saying. They don't have dealings. What? What? Jesus addresses a common humanity. You see, somebody is constantly coming to the well. Jesus is tired. He's hungry. He's thirsty. Do you know the word hangry? You ever get that way? We all do. Don't forget Jesus' humanity. He asks a common question. But it wasn't common. And he knew that. He wasn't in a common place. See, somebody is coming to the well in the middle of your day. After a long journey. On a long journey. When you're hungry. When you're tired. When you're thirsty. In difficult and hostile territory. You see, evangelism usually in the church means something organized. Something tactical. Okay, we're going to get the church and have an evangelism program. Now, as the executive director of a global missions organization, I'm okay with that. (laughs) Spend most of my days thinking about how we can be more strategic and intentional and careful and successful at the work of evangelism. So I believe in those things. The danger, though, is this. The danger in programming and scheduling and designing evangelism is we forget that evangelism is at its message, at its heart, is a message of sharing truth. And the truth is the truth we just saw in the chapter before, in verse 16 of John 3. The truth is that we've got some really good news to share. That's the truth. That's the amazing, life-changing thing about what this thing we call the gospel. It's alive. It's real. It changes everything. And when we share it, can make all the difference in the world. Because some of the most effective times we share it is when we're least expecting to. And Jesus didn't do anything 
out of the ordinary as such, did he? Oh, but he did. It was where he was. It was who he was speaking to. He said, may I have a drink? May I have some water? To be effective in seeing God change lives, much of it has to do with where we are physically and who we're talking to. Has it ever occurred to you that it's easier to reach lost people if you're talking to lost people? Now that may sound very complex, but it's very true. If we're with people who need Jesus, we have a much higher chance of success in sharing Jesus. But we've got to be there. Somebody is constantly coming to the well. What's your well? Where are you right now? Where are you this week? Where are you this month? Where do you go every day? I'm assuming, given the fact that I'm in the Pacific Northwest, and that there's a lot of you, you have a well, and it's called the coffee shop. It's not that different than Jacob's well. Somebody is constantly coming to the well, but we're going to go into verse 10. The woman asked him this question. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Well, that's a quick turn of events. I mean, quickly turns on a dime. Sometimes folks ask me, when should I share the gospel? Whenever you can. Whenever you can. May I have a drink? Why are you asking me for a drink? If you knew who was asking you for a drink, you'd be asking him for a drink because I can give you water that'll never stop satisfying. What? Who are you? I mean, this is, this is instant dialogue. This is happening right in that moment. You see, somebody is coming to the well intending to temporarily satisfy a permanent thirst. Well, of course they are. You can't just have one glass of water in your life. Of course, they are coming again and again and again and again. They have to be there. You see, human society is built to crush the weak. Stay with me for a moment. Religious hypocrisy and empty ritual leave people in endless cycles of confusion and grief. Jesus is about to speak directly and frankly from a natural place of human connection. But as he does this, he overturns, in fact, shatters a cultural barrier. Evangelism demands that we break the walls that humans build. Jesus uses a natural human conversation pattern to reveal and address the Samaritan's woman's deepest vulnerabilities, both in a physical and in a spiritual sense. The damage to this that has been done to this woman opens the door to a religious discussion. 
which opens the door to truth. And we'll see that truth in John 4, 24. God is spirit. So what happens? The woman says in verse 11, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. And so there's an instant challenge back. Who are you? What, what are you talking about? Who do you think you are? Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, this physical water. But whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up into eternal life. Jesus is constantly pointing us to life eternal. He's pointing us to a world beyond this one. He's pointing us to a future hope. Which is why we have to be very careful what we promise people about the Christian life. Because Christian, Christian life, Christian living... The church is about life eternal. It's about living in this life to prepare for the next. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She has reverted back to a physical idea. She's thinking, what is this guy, magic? What, what, what is this magic thing? What, what, what are you talking about? Well, I'll have some of that. Jesus pivots the conversation in verse 16 and says, go call your husband and come here. The woman said, I have no husband. So Jesus, in line with cultural rules of the time, speaks to something very powerful. The male was the protector. So there was a limit to where he could go in social propriety. He says, go, go call your husband. We'll have this conversation. I don't have one. Correct. You've had five. And the one you're with now is not your husband. So you have said correctly and accurately. What's he doing? Can you imagine what it's like in that time when women are treated like property to have been divorced five times by your husband's? To be treated as chattel, to be used and abused and cast out five times. Can you imagine the vulnerabilities and the damage that this woman has suffered? It's horrifying. We often view this woman as some type of seductress or temptress. The rules of the time indicate Five husbands means five divorces. And the husband could write the bill of divorce and send her out, just as there is the case in many parts of the world right now, where you can have one-hour-long marriages in certain parts of the world today. The use and abuse of this woman is a nightmare. She doesn't want to go into it. He speaks directly to the vulnerability. He says, you're speaking honestly. But hey, can we actually get honest here? Can we actually get real here? In my church in London, most Sundays I would end our service with a moment of response and I would 
often close with these words. If you really want to know God, then you have to do two things. Number one, you have to be honest with God. And then in being honest with God, you can be honest with yourself. The brokenness, the shattered lives, the emptiness of this woman is very real. Can I say to you that around this church are thousands and millions of people with broken, heartache, stress, unbelievable turmoil going on inside of them, seeking any and every coping mechanism possible to get through another day, another week, another month. Can I also say that's the case for the vast majority, if not all of us in this room too. And yet, maybe some of us have found living water. We found spirit. We found life eternal. The woman said to him in verse 19, I perceive you are a prophet. Wow, what a moment. You must be a prophet. So she goes right to where she's gone, her religious foundation. Well, it's about where you worship. It's about you worship and you must be a Jewish prophet. You, you figured me out. You're one of those mystics. You understand who I am. You, okay, then why do you worship down there and we worship up here? What's that all about? No. No, Jesus takes that away too. He says, let's don't go there. No, 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 no. Verse 21, Jesus said, believe me, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. Salvation is from the Jews, and certainly it is. But the hour is coming and is now here. What wonderful words of life and hope. The hour is coming and is now here. And may I say that is also true for everyone in this room this Sunday morning. That the hour is coming, but it is now here. What does Jesus say? True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. The Father is seeking people who will be honest with Him. The Father is seeking honest people. Who will come to them in full truth of broken lives and hearts. And as we sing this morning, find marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and guilt. You see, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Well, what happens Well, there's a fast conclusion to this sermon. It's a long buildup and a wonderful conclusion. And the conclusion always is when Jesus gets there. It's real. It's quick. It's apparent. From verse 25 through verse 42, as you look at the end of this passage, here's what happens. Somebody is coming to the well. 
And if you win anybody, not everybody will understand. In verse 25, as soon as Jesus says those words, she says the exact right thing. She says, the woman said to him, I know Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. You see, she's starting to pick it up. You're kind of telling me everything here. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Right then the disciples walk up and they're mar- they marvel. You know what the word marvel means? It means surprise, shock, stunned, amazed, confused. What in the world's going on here? Well, Jesus is doing evangelism. It's kind of a Jesus thing. Isn't it amazing the disciples couldn't figure it out? Can I tell you, if you do real evangelism with people who aren't normally in church, there will be people in church who are marvel, amazed, confused, surprised, shocked, confused, even sometimes concerned. But it doesn't matter. Because here's what we have to keep doing it, because look at what happens. The woman leaves her jar in verse 28 and goes into town and says these words. Come see a man who told me everything, told me all that ever I did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. You know what happened to that woman? He told her everything. She found the answer to everything. And her instant response is to say, I've just received good news. I just found the Messiah. I just found freedom. I just found living water. Come and see this thing. Come and see this thing. You know what we say in today's words that happened to her? She got saved. She got saved. She got saved. Meanwhile, while she's getting saved and a city is walking out to Jesus, the disciples tell him to eat food. We start the passage with water, we end it with food. Food and water, spiritual nourishment, physical nourishment. Hold on, what's happening here? Jesus says, forget the water, forget the food. You see, he doesn't eat or drink after all of this in this passage. In fact, we conclude the story with these words. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Don't say there are four months and then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here this saying holds true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into the labor. He's having to tell the disciples that it's about sowing and reaping a harvest. It's about winning those who need to be won. So the Samaritans come and they believe the woman's testimony. And they come and believe Jesus. In verse 40, they say, Jesus, can you stay here for a few more days? So Jesus stays two days more. And many more believed because of his word. And the concluding verse of this story is verse 42. Because this is the end result of evangelism. The woman met Jesus and brought a city to know him. But what happens is it's no longer about the woman and her message. It's about something even better. 
They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. I don't know what brought you here this morning. I don't know what you're struggling with, but I'm fairly sure we all need the living water that Jesus offers. What brokenness you bring, all I can do is tell you that he changes lives. I've watched him change countless lives. But it's up to you to hear his message. Drink his life-giving water. Eat the bread that will never go away. And know that he truly is the savior of the world. And for all of us who've tasted and know that the Lord is good, can we remind ourselves there are millions more at our everyday well that just need a sip and let's share it. Father, this morning, thank you for this moment, this chance to hear, to know that you are good news, that you will satisfy, that life eternal is something to have. And that in our truth before you, the full truth, we find healing, grace, and love. In Jesus' name, amen.